Welcome to Empowered Leadership. We share candid conversations with successful leaders about what it takes to cultivate the leadership, life, and legacy you desire, and to do it with confidence, ease, and joy. I'm your host, Alexandra Reese. Welcome to another episode of Empowered Leadership. I'm your host, Alexandra Reese, and today I'm joined by Andrew Brummer, Chief Services Officer at LifeQ, a leading provider of biometrics and health information derived from wearable devices. If you're not familiar with LifeIQ, let me take a moment to explain what they do because it's a really incredible company. Their FDA-approved biometric solutions go beyond your typical smartwatch, although they do offer those to provide the information solutions that enable customers like doctors, consumers, etc., to detect health problems and prevent illness related to some of our most significant health issues today, like cardiovascular disease, respiratory disorders, and sleep apnea. Andrew has been with LifeQ since 2015, just a year after the company was founded, and has helped scale the organization worldwide, driving double-digit annual revenue growth in many of those years. That's all to say, Andrew has a whole lot of experience and credibility as a leader. So I can't wait to share his stories, his experience, and the most important lessons he's learned along the way through our conversation today. There's a lot of gold in this episode. So without further ado, let's dive in. Hello, Andrew. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Empowered Leadership. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for the invitation and being part of the journey that you're on. I am very excited to have you here. I'm sure we'll get into it, but as I shared in the introduction, you have such a unique role and work in such a unique organization. So I'm excited to hear all the wealth of wisdom, knowledge, and insight you can share from that experience. And all mistakes, but we'll go there. <laughs> yeah. Well, before we dive into that, as you know, I always like to ask my guests the same opening question, which is, what does empowered leadership mean to you? So for me, it's about helping people find their inner soul of how they can be successful in getting out of their way, helping them get the work done and not being there as a safety net. So when they do make mistakes and when they do falter and when they do fall, that you're able to catch them. But for me, it's about finding the right people, identifying the talent, harvesting and yielding it out of them, and then getting out of their way and being the support structure. It's directional, it comes empathetic, it comes work, it comes technical empowerment. There's so many things that come from taking people that are hungry and want to and empowering them and letting them go. I love that word, soul, that you used. I'm curious, what comes up for you as you use that word in a business context? And you talk about really eliciting that from people so they can show up and do their best work. Yeah, as I mentioned, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts and a lot has got to do with the soul of people. It's You can be an instructional lead, which will come to my closing question that you usually ask, but you get to see versions of what your instructions are. You don't get to see the magnificence of how people can become to be. And when you can find a way to open up the heart of people, you get them to want to lean in, you get them to want to do, you get them to innovate to do. And then what outcomes of that is a level of multiplication that you could not do through instruction. It's a level of multiplication and empowerment at a human level, at a company soul level, at the individual growth level, at the team level. 
it gets to a point of viral expansion that's really hard to slow down, but it takes quite a while to get to that point that people actually trust and will embolden themselves to allow their own vulnerabilities to step out and allow their own failures to help them realize a successful tomorrow. I think you're so on point with the power of creating a space where people can tap into their whole self and be vulnerable and bring those full sets of perspectives, talent, skills into the workplace. I think all leaders would agree that's really valuable. Most leaders, when they think about how to do that, tend to look at the model of transformational leadership, you know, set an inspiring vision, galvanize people around that. I don't think that's enough. I'm curious, what else have you found to be successful in doing that in your own work? As a lead, we all know that there are things in your head that you know you need to help people come to terms with and realize and be okay with. And not everybody's ready at the time that you're ready to convey that message. You have to hit the pause button and find it when people are ready. So the piece that galvanized it, I think, and I'm really eager to open up my team so you can ask them this question because we debate this the whole time, is I believe in absolute transparency. I believe in absolute openness. There's a lot of theory that says be vulnerable with your team, tell them where you're at, demonstrate that you're willing to fail, you're willing to be right and wrong, that you're willing to dig in and say, sorry, love you in the morning, but this is the way we're doing it. But also being open to saying, well, geez, you know, there's got to be another way to do this. So there are different ways of thinking. And that takes time for people to see that you're not just following the theory. It takes time for people to see that you are genuine. When I took over the role in LifeQ to do what I'm doing, it Probably took me, must have been easy a year, year and a half, took a long time to get the team to a point that there are absolute safe discussions. There is absolute psychological safe, physical safe, topic safe, work safe. There is no topic that my team will not address me in a direct, open, transactional manner, in a strategic manner, in a loving manner, in a caring manner. It takes time and you can't rush that. I think that's key is you have to allow people at their own course for their own reason, at their own time, in their own design, you have to allow them to find themselves and find themselves within that trusted space. And, you know, once you've got people that are confident in self and there's self-presence and self-awareness in who and what they're about, you then start seeing loyalty towards the leader, which then spills over to the company. And that's exciting. What comes behind that is passion, passion for the company, passion for self and passion for people. And you cannot salary passion. I love that. <laughs> when you can get people to live and breathe passion in everything they do, every problem they try to solve, every customer they engage with, every hard discussion they go and have. When passion is involved, salary is irrelevant. You're dealing with the people that are convicted to cause and the team organizational actualization. Yeah, I think a point you made in there, I think is so important to affirm, which is that building that trust and that cohesive team that has the ability and the comfort and the psychological safety to have rich intellectual debate takes a lot of time. And that isn't a reflection of the quality of your leadership. No. It's a reflection of the fact that most people have had experiences in the past that led them to believe that opening up is not safe. It's a reflection of the fact that many people take a lot of time to open up. And as a leader, one of the most important things you can do is to depersonalize it and just remind yourself, it's a journey. It's not about me. 
And my job is to meet people where they are and create a space so that as people step out a little further outside of their comfort zone, they're consistently getting the reinforcement that it's safe to do so. Yeah. And that's critical. As you were talking, it reminded me of some of the journeys I've been on with some of my team members. What may work for one person to help yield them out and yield their soul out and the brilliance of who they are as a human being to challenge them individually, to help them find their feet in the gravitas. My team has full autonomy in decisioning, full autonomy in execution. I have two rules with my team. One, don't let me get caught with my pants down. If you break something, I'm the first person. That yeah. And two, take ownership of anything you're doing. And those are only two rules my team have. Everything else is free game. And so absolute autonomy. But with autonomy, people say they want autonomy, but watching people transcend through autonomy is really interesting. And that's where a lot of the relationship steps in that self-awareness. Because when people say they don't want micromanagement, what they don't like about autonomy is now when they go through that transitional phase is they're now accountable. They can't point to somebody else and say, well, I'll sit on my rear end and have a cup of coffee and wait for somebody else to make the decision and then I'll go execute. They now own execution. They own follow through. They can celebrate in pride that they've won stuff and they can celebrate in equal humbleness and humility when they make mistakes. But that autonomy piece is critical individual awareness as you grow them through it is critical and then there's a lot said for being firm being hard when they try to escape out of it holding their proverbial feet to the fire to say no no hold on a second but you're now backing out you're trying to find an excuse for this thing that's called leadership that's really hard managing people making product decisions is hard deciding without an executive in the room is hard when you're a startup you live and breathe and die on the vine of good and bad decisions and they happen really quickly so it's interesting the individual figuring them out figuring the growth out and then helping them all find one another on the common on the other side of the causeway so that they're all in the same boat with the same ideology and the same approach towards doing things but being patient and being okay with absolute failure and absolute success and then being humble enough just not to stay out of the way and allow them to celebrate their own success, they're not easy. No. <laughs> and I think you captured perfectly the other side of the coin of what creates a passionate person who's really in it for the long haul. It's not just, I feel belonging in the organization and I have trust and cohesion in my team, but it's also, I have autonomy over my work. I feel like I can take ownership. I can yeah. run with something and I therefore get choice. And I get to express the fullness of the gifts that I have. And it is hard. And something I think that a lot of leaders underappreciate is why it's often so hard. Mm -hmm. And it's not just in my experience, because people shy away from the accountability or they're scared over the ownership. It's that we spend the first 20 years of someone's life in our educational system programming them to yeah. sit back, take in information and regurgitate it back. So any notion of being curious, taking ownership over your learning journey, challenging the status quo in most educational institutions is actively punished. Yeah. So essentially we tell kids as they grow up through yeah. those most formative years that taking ownership and having autonomy will get you punished. And then they get into the workplace and it's like, why aren't you taking the initiative? What's yeah. wrong with you? And I often, when I work with new people leaders or executives who want to, to your point, scale leadership, that's one of the first things we talk about is having empathy for the experiences that most people had coming into the workplace, how yeah. that shaped the narratives they carry yeah. about what it means to be successful and therefore why their gut instincts may not work well, but they're not wrong. They just yeah. are. 
We have a very healthy 360 process and peer review process up and down across the channel. We've got a very healthy, very active. We used to do it three times a year. That got onerous. So we dropped it down to two times a year. And on one of the first ones, one of my direct reports in my review said, Andrew's two hands off. He needs to be more instructional and tell me what to do and what I need to do. So I don't know which team member it was, obviously. So my executive, the CEO, gave me the feedback. And I went to my team on the very next managed my weekly OpsExco session with them. And I said, right, I'm not here to tell you how to do your jobs. You're all hired to do your jobs. If you are not sure about what your job entails, then ask me the question or go to homework. And if you're not going to do the homework, then maybe the job is not for you. I'm not here to do your job. So you have to, as leadership, it's the same with a kid. You know, when you're bringing a kid up, there are discussions that you know you have to have with absolute gentleness, absolute loving care, but they're hard discussions that you have to look the people in the eye and say, you've got to find your path through this. You've got to find your way because effective leadership is not people being codependent on you. Effective leadership is where you make yourself redundant. Effective leadership is where your team can execute without your presence. They understand the basic rules. They understand the basic method. And the odd chance they'll make a mistake and you have to trust they're going to live that. But it's hard to get people to that point. They let go is really hard. It's tough. Well, and it takes not just a desire and a reprogramming of those narratives, but it takes for a lot of people some real capability development. So maybe the one thing I'd add if I was coaching you through a 360 would be reflecting on the question, how can I have those conversations with each of my team members one-on-one to better understand where are they at in that journey from needing a lot of direction and maybe micromanagement to feeling like they have full autonomy? And how can I meet someone where they're at, set the expectation that we want to get here and then provide them with the resources they need, be it some coaching, some capability development, so that they can navigate that without feeling like they're just being thrown into the deep end. Because as you know, leadership, it's a skill that you have to learn. It's not something that you just intuit. Yeah, and I'm using just words, and I'd love to hear if you do chat with my team, I'd love to hear their interpretation of how they've been through this journey. There's absolute humanity and dignity in being very soft and gentle. So I use very strong words and colorful words here. And at the right time, the right place with individuals, you coach appropriately and meaningfully and in the right direction. And you help push people forward. And that's about understanding their strengths, identifying weaknesses, maximizing strengths, being aware of and supporting the weaknesses, which one of the podcasts just recently covered, focusing on the strengths, respecting weaknesses and figuring out how the team support one another. And then leveraging off of that growth pattern. Once it gets going, it becomes viral. Every executive runs their ship and their shop very, very differently. And you can't influence, you can't cross those boundaries. It's like telling one parent how to bring their children up and you just don't do that. You're stepping on very hot potatoes. And with leadership, it's not too dissimilar where you have to allow each of the leaders while holding one another accountable, you have to allow them to manage and lead their team. What's really cool about viral leadership when passion is at play is you have people that may not necessarily be led in the same fashion, but they start asking questions. I'm a firm believer that if you demonstrate to people that logic will prevail and logic will win most times, people will be brave. People will step out of the norm, out of what school and 20 years of upbringing and societal rules have taught us. People will be brave and they'll step out and they'll start asking questions about how do we emulate that? How do we do that? But like I said, it was an 18-month journey for me to get my team to where it is today. Yeah, and I might use a slightly different word than logic, but I think it's the same in concept, which is predictability. You know, and that came out in our discussion of how do you build a cohesive team? Well, you create predictability in that every time somebody takes a little bit of a risk, 
to step outside their comfort zone, you predictably positively reinforce that. That is, I think at a fundamental level, I talk about this a lot. That's the key to building a thriving culture is predictability. Like Mm -hmm. here are policies that define the culture we strive to create. And then we predictably reinforce those policies day in and day out. It doesn't need to be more complicated, but I think so many people miss the importance of the predictable reinforcement day in and day out, because that's when you get the toxic culture is when people are like, you said or did one thing yesterday, and then you said or did another thing tomorrow. And it's just a complete disconnect. Yeah, they're in absolute conflict with one another. You're spot on. Because one of the challenges of a leader, if you face problem A today and today you're in a good mood and the mojo and energy is up and you're loving the world, the manner in which you address the problem today or respond to the problem today should be the same when you are annoyed and frustrated with either a peer exec, or a house spat or a kid stepping out of line or whatever, or aggressive driver. You have to engage in the problem solving as a leader in the same way you would every single time. You have to be persistent. You have to be consistent. Like you said, it's got to be predictable. People have got to know that no matter what, there is a level ahead. You cannot be charged. You can't manage people through execution of emotion because that drives fear. That drives non-predictability. That drives irrational responses. And people are not safe then and people just will not engage. They will yield out and they'll back out of the discussion. The problem is it can take 18 months to work and get it right. It takes two mistakes and you're done. Uh You rebuild it all back up. (laughs) I think mistakes can come at a big cost if there isn't appropriate and prompt repair work done. Absolutely. I had a client, we had a coaching session this week and she had an incident with her team. She was really frustrated And she lashed out in a way that didn't land well. And she made a point quickly after the meeting to go and talk to each person one-on-one who is in the room and just take ownership and apologize. No excuses, just acknowledge this isn't how I want to show up. I know I didn't live in alignment to our values. How'd that feel for you? I'm really sorry. Yeah, and it's following the rules of apologizing properly where you actually are sorry about what you just did or said and not just doing it because there's a bunch of theory that says you need to go back and do it. It just keeps coming back to the common themes in all your podcasts about genuineness. It's about being present, being mindful. It's about caring. It's about predictability, the individual respecting the individual in their own journey of how they're going through because we are all the sum of ourselves for different reasons and none of them are wrong. They're all just different. And what's wrong is not respecting that and learning and using that. And I don't mean using as a manipulation but using that as a mechanism to help people be successful. Yeah. I think the other common theme that's really important here is self-leadership work, because it's hard to make really thoughtful, good decisions on a good day, and then use that same rigor and approach on a bad day when you're facing stress. Because when you're stressed, your sympathetic nervous system takes over. It causes you to tunnel vision you lose that peripheral awareness, you lose the ability to think long-term, and you have to learn as a leader how to recognize when you're in that state, how to pause so that you're not making decisions from that place or engaging with people from that place, and how to re-regulate and then step back into things. And that practice of the awareness, the pause, the re-regulation is hard work, and it's especially hard work when you're running a million miles an hour. 
Yeah, and it has to be your game face on the whole time and your game face has to be your honest face. It has to be, this is me. This is as I am. And people get to respect and appreciate and eventually end up loving that. The dedication and passion and commitment that comes as a result of that level of engagement with people, it's hard to verbalize. It really is hard to describe. I observe some of the leaders, some of the teams. You know, I reflect on it from previously the organizations I've been in. I reflect on some of the discussions on the podcast that you had. Getting a team to the point that they're self-leading and self-autonomous in your absence, while missed, is not critical. You're headed in a good direction. And then it's about helping them be great leaders so that they can take the lessons they've learned and they can become multipliers for the organization. So you can grow up your management and your leadership structure so you're not dependent on the executive team running a startup. I mean, we're a 100-person startup. We're growing really fast. You know, we've hit a bit of a pause now, but growing our growth clip rate was 75% year on year. So that that's was huge. hard growing into that. And you've got to create a leadership structure that's going to help you carry on expanding. I think that's a great segue, just noting the rapid growth that you've been in. And you've been there for quite some time. I'd love to hear about how has your own leadership evolved? since you started at the company? My role has been in the support of the CEO. I'm a jack of all trades. If you read my profile, you see there's pretty much not much that I haven't done across multiple continents, across multiple business verticals, across multiple functional operational products. So leadership has grown within phases of companies. So as I've stepped into different roles, I used to be an organizational change efficiency specialist. Stepping in and the more leeway that you get in terms of running, the more you demonstrate that all the theory-based concepts that we've just run through, they're sticky in their work, the more leeway you get, the more access you get to growing. My personal journey has been from consulting into product management, into helping define strategy for product, and then getting into the operational side of it. So figuring out how you drive an organization without being the leader, being the leader, without being the leader, influencing people without having a title, trying to help people become aware, you know, and you have to be okay with 10 things and two of them stick and eight of them are not ready. And you have to be okay with that. And then slowly progressing into and my function inside of, of LifeQ has grown from just being an operations hand through to looking after the operations officer function as well as the CIO function. And between then and now, I mean, I could probably write a book and everything I've experienced. But the most interesting thing is dealing with different people. Scientists think differently from engineers, think differently from operational people, think differently from software engineers. I mean, it's just fundamentals. And that's not profiling. It's just to be a brilliant scientist. There's a certain persona, a certain way of thinking. You mm -hmm. have to be able to be a brilliant scientist. And finding a way to navigate all those and dealing with people that have done their 20, 30, 40 years of schooling where they have their stoic way is just slowly trying to find how you influence without having a title. How do you drive? How do you create visibility? How do you drive predictability? Logic in my world, in what I've always used. How do you drive that without the title? How do you get people to embrace a new tomorrow and to strive for a new tomorrow? At one stage, when I just took over the function, one of my now one of my senior leads said to me, if you know where we need to be in five years' time, why don't you just tell us? Why don't you just tell us where we need to be? And my answer to the person was, because you're not ready to hear it. Because as soon as I tell you it, you're going to start rebelling it and you're going to say it's not possible. So you'll subconsciously start working against it. So you have to figure out at what time are people ready to hear the messaging. And some people sooner, other people later. And you've got to be okay with that. What an interesting insight. <laughs> I don't think we often think about it that way. I like that. I also have done a lot of work in change and transformation leadership. And, you know, if you look at conventional wisdom, it often says, give people as much information as possible, as early as possible, give it to them again and again in 10 different ways. And through doing that, I've learned myself that 
often that creates change fatigue and overwhelm because people just don't know what's important. They get overwhelmed by it. And then it ultimately leads to disengagement and failed change because people tune it out. I hadn't thought about how giving too much information can also create resistance because people just aren't ready for it. And it's not malicious resistance. It's just people listen to the topic and they listen to the message or the potential outcome. And what they do is they take a future state and they try to apply it to current state. And it's not wrong. It's just people think differently. I just happen to have a strategic, emotive, forward-thinking type. So playing it forward, you have to be mindful that as far forward as you can think, most people deal with three months, three, four, five, six months ahead of them. And if you try to paint a picture that's going to groundbreakingly change it to that same team member, I went to that team member, I think in the last two months, and I said, we are more or less where I expected us to be. If I told you this is where we would be, what would your reaction be? She would have said, I would have thought you had lost it. There's no chance we could ever (laughs) have got here. And I probably would have resisted all along the journey. And it's hard because you don't want to leave people blind. You don't want to catch them off guard. I know a lot of leaders who I've worked with many ages ago who I could imagine might reflect similar views of people listening to this who are like, great, I don't have to share information if I don't want. Good luck with that one. Your leadership strategy and investments and people's trust in you, their vision you. I mean, you're done. It's just it ain't going to go anyway. Yeah. And I think that's what I wanted to come back to is really two things. You just said one of them, which is, That ability to say, trust me, I've got a vision, but let's focus now on execution of what we're doing today. Because you know that's where your people's mindset is and their own focus is. That requires significant trust. can't do that if people don't trust you because then people are going to be living in this sense of fear and uncertainty around, is he holding back information because I'm going to be eliminated? You know, people will go to the worst case scenario in the absence of trust. You're on the money, Alexander. And part of that is when you say you have a vision of where things have got to be, you can't just say that in this nebulous kumbaya goal that you mentioned you don't have. It's about saying, I have a vision. Let's take one step. Let's take another step. It's not about holding back information. It's about knowing where things... And that statement I made to that individual, because that individual was mature enough to receive that message. And that individual was asked a lot of very direct, very probing, very challenging questions. One would not do that with every human being in the team. That just would be non-functional. But with the person that you have that discussion with, when you open your mind and you become vulnerable in that, you have to remain vulnerable in that and you have to show you're going in the right direction. And when you misstep and there are mistakes, you have to fess up and you have to be open to it and say, well, that wasn't supposed to happen. That's not what was planned. But when there are milestones, you equally have to then reflect back and say, remember that last discussion? This is one step closer in the right direction. And that way you build up trust. It's not about holding back information. It's about we all know that you can't tell everybody everything in the company. It's about in this particular stance, it was an individual that has turned out to be a right hand for me to be able to help get stuff done. And this person asked really good, challenging questions. So it was a healthy environment. It turned out to be a healthy growth and healthily managed. But if you are someone who's going to play information war games and you're going to weaponize the knowledge that you have, you know, good luck. People will see straight through you. Agreed. I'm glad we came back to that point because I wanted to make sure people didn't take the wrong message from that. (laughs) It's just things. It's like imagine Elon Musk having said in 2003 that we're going to Mars and he's going to, I mean, it's just like really people would have just said this man, I mean, you're on planet Lulu. It's not happening. You got to bring people along the way, along the journey and help them 
as they are ready to be able to mature into concepts and ideas. Mm -hmm. So we've talked a lot about the evolution of your role at the organization. I'd love to hear what are one or two experiences that you had to the extent you're comfortable sharing where you learned a tough, hard-earned lesson and what was it? Being brave is not for the faint of heart and being brave is putting yourself in the lion's den and knowing there's a good chance you're going to get et alive, but you go into the lion's den nevertheless. In around last year, October timeframe, we had some challenges and I went into the lion's den. I had a 17 on one meeting and the lions ravaged my presence. So, and it's good. It's healthy. And what you do there is you demonstrate vulnerability, you demonstrate strength, you demonstrate being brave, you demonstrate that not all things come easy, you demonstrate that there is respect of individuality. And there may be people in the organization who do not subscribe or buy into what you believe and what you are practicing and what's going on around them. For whatever reason, they choose not to. You can't force them. That was a good lesson. And that activity, which is a year ago, near on a year ago now, has yielded great results in helping people move on, minds move on, people find it's the ability. So you read the theory about doing it, but to be in the face of it as an executive when you walk in the room and you make yourself vulnerable and expose yourself like that is really hard because it could go pear-shaped in a hurry. It could go upside down in a big hurry. It was a good lesson for me about there is absolute merit to the theory of being brave, addressing hard situations, being vulnerable in those situations and help people find that safe space in that. And over time, it will yield results. But again, it's time and you have to be patient. Yeah, every misstep, plan that doesn't work out, uncomfortable interaction, no matter how big or small it is that goes unaddressed, will just grow, grow, grow and become eventually an elephant that sits between you and the other person or you and the team or within the team. And it's funny you bring that story up because that's been a theme of a lot of my coaching conversations in the last two weeks is how do I collaborate better with people where things feel off? And one of the first things I say is you have to create space to address the elephant in the room because you can't work around it effectively at a really high performing level. You've got to get the elephant out the door. And the only way to do it is to acknowledge it's there, to have an open and frank conversation about it and to create space to just listen and be empathetic and not have an agenda. Absolutely. And that takes a lot of bravery. (laughs) Which is easier said than done. (laughs) (laughs) So it's about stop talking about the presence of the elephant in the room and start addressing the elephant, making because we have a habit of saying, well, there's an elephant in the room and then people get coy and shy and they don't really want to speak about it. I've been in many situations with the executive team where something has transpired in the organization and I'm like, that's fine. I'm going to address the team on it now. And the concern is, but aren't we overreacting? Do we not need to just kind of let this lie? And my commentary is when you let really hard, challenging things lie, they become non-talkable topics. You set the norm that these kind of things are non-addressable. And then what you as an executive team demonstrate to the balance of the organization is that when these tough things come up, we'll sweep them under the rug and we'll pretend they're not there, but nudge, nudge, wink, wink, we'll talk about it at some stage. And you have to demonstrate firm, convicted leadership. You know, being leadership is about being predictable. People know when there are missteps, you vocalize them when you talk. And there have been mistakes along the way in terms of my personal journey in helping the organization get to where it's at today. But holistically, we've 
come through the firefighting. We're an incredibly healthy organization now, and we've got some amazing people in the company. I'm very passionate for one another and for the cause of what we're doing. We're solving a very, very hard problem. We're going to take the average Western medical hospital into the far reaches of the most poorest countries and give them the equal ability to manage their own lives and be healthy and be aware of what they're doing. And we're going to fundamentally change how healthcare is run, but that's a long journey. We've got a long way to go. The key is having the people and the key is helping us get there. I'm a firm believer if you look after the people, the people will look after the customers and the customers will look after the company. And that's a never-ending story, but you've got to look after the people. I so agree. And I think that statement, which you put so succinctly, is the reason you're probably one of the few high-growth startups I've interacted with that has a healthy organizational culture. I mean, most high-growth startups, the leadership team is so focused understandably so, on the product, bringing it to market, learning from those early experiences, Mm -hmm. growing, scaling, that they often neglect the infrastructure building and the people development work. And it comes to bite them in the ass later. The way I describe my function in the organization is engaging and helping draw and find the best in people. My chief science officer is a beautiful human being. He's just a great, great guy, smart as heck. But it would be unfair to say to him, you need to carry the social awareness that Andrew does and help drive. So it's about me recognizing him, me respecting him and his contribution and role, understanding his importance. And the same with the balance of our organization. One of the podcasts I just finished wrapping up on my binge listen again was your executive team is your first team. Mm-hmm. That's your private team. And making sure that those people inside all the inner conflicts and frustrations and annoyances and all the heats of discussions that go on, they are your first team. My goal is to make sure that I remove as many obstacles out of their way so that they can do their job. My team is a servant pleaser, servant provider team. Um, they know it. We live it. We understand that the services world is that of doing and very often not being recognized or appreciated or being thanked. Um, we have a servant pleaser mentality and we do it with pride and we look after one another and we love one another and we drive forward. But my job at the executive team is to hold the executive team accountable to their own growth and allow our team to do what we do. And their job is to get product out. So the credit of where the organization is today and why it is where it's at today is to the CEO because he's had the fortitude. When he talks about what we're doing in our startup, he's a VC as well. When he talks about what we're doing in our startup to other startups, they're like, you mean you have a full-time executive that is just there to help make sure your operations and services? And he's like, yes, and it's a vital part of the company. It's a vital part of them being able to do their job. I'm glad you hit that point home because I think that's a really important takeaway for leaders. Maybe they're not in a high growth startup, but they're in a small organization. If you're struggling with retention, engagement, performance issues, it's really important to practice some self-awareness and get really clear around what's my superpower? Where do I contribute the most value? And if you're like most founder CEOs, it's probably in the product arena or in the market arena. And you've got to complement that with somebody who's really their superpower and strength is in the people and the service arena. And doing that is such an enabler and an accelerator of growth, because then you're bringing team members in, and you're not losing them within a year. You're not constantly bleeding money to having to go through new hiring processes or bring on contractors when people leave. I mean, it ultimately saves you a lot of money 
But so many people, I think, are scared to build mm-hmm. out what they see as a kind of non-essential function in their executive team. Yeah, you look at the productivity of a person that's passionate about what they're doing because they're amongst a bunch of people that are passionate about what they're doing. You look at the productivity, the throughput, the creativity that comes out of that, and then marry that up against somebody who's just doing what they were told to do. There is just no comparison. There's no comparison at productivity, at throughput, or at ideation level. There's just no comparison. For leaders who want to really push forward a new phase of growth or a big transformation in their organization, similar to the work you've done, what other advice might you have for them that we haven't covered? Be patient. Take the time to know individuals. I'm a firm believer in the Gallups and the Strength Finders. I'm an avid reader. I have something like 1,500 books that I've gone through and I listen. I've got a set of leadership self-development books that I listen to on a regular cadence. Pick your books. and There are a ton of them out there and don't listen to them now or read them now and then forget about them. You've know, you got to just keep yourself accountable patience and just be brave and how you engage with it. I mean, there's so many things I said, being brave is equal to that of understanding humanity is equal to that of being empathetic is equal to that of, so I don't know that there's one piece here. I think it's being mindful that leadership is doing all of those things, not all of the theory, but the headlines of what the theory says, you know, be empathetic, be aware, be coachable, be vulnerable, be trustworthy, be predictable. It's practicing those time and time and time and time and time again, and never yielding, not yielding, not for any reason. And absolutely, (laughs) suffer your own FOMO moments. (laughs) Get over it. If you're going to be a leader, be a leader or a leader doer. If you're a doer leader, you're in trouble. You're just going to battle. Then you may as well just be a manager. A leader doer gets to give away all the things they love doing to other people. But then you charge them with success. And then you get to do the stuff nobody else wants to do. And you got to be comfortable with that. And at the end of the day, for me, my passion, my success in life, my yield, my value statements in life is watching other people be successful. Is doing everything I can, everything I can to the betterment of someone else in the team so that they're able to yield and affect other people's lives in a small manner of which I was able to affect theirs, that growth there. So if you say to me what to do, I don't know, Alexandra, I don't have a simple answer for you. I don't have an easy one. Read a lot, read wide, read voraciously, read, 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 and reread. There's so much beautiful theory out there. Listen to your podcast, just emulating and being reminded of all the nuggets out there a lot of books we read and we're like yeah i know that yeah i know that yeah i know that yeah 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 i know that whatever but when you're in the heat of the moment there are nuggets in every book along the journey that you just skip over they're not relevant and at different times of your life they become relevant so i would say read your heart out i keep books that i'm currently paging through behind me in part so that it reminds me you don't read a book and put it away yeah. you read a book set it down, and then read it again. Because to your point, as we evolve in our leadership journey, we'll be similar to you described your colleague, we'll be ready to hear different messages. And if we're not ready, we're not going to hear the wisdom. Spot on. Absolutely. (laughs) What are one or two of your top books, leadership books? There are a couple of them. So Quiet, Start With Why, Change Anything, I stumbled across a book now that I'm really annoyed that I didn't read earlier. It's become required reading for my team, a book, uh, Crucial Conversations. Oh, Uh, yeah, that's a great one. Just did a workshop on the art of productive conflict, which (laughs) mostly was all about how do you prepare your mindset (laughs) and yourself to walk into a crucial conversation in a way that you're setting yourself up and the other person up for the most long-term success. There's another book that I think most people working within a company would overlook. Probably the book I bought for most people. It was written 
with a focus of consultants and how you are a trusted advisor to your customers. So the book is called Trusted Advisor. I've listened and read the book more times than I can think I can count. It has all the nuggets of what it takes to develop trust, to be authentic, and to really listen and be engaged with the people. I'd encourage anyone, if you're a service provider or you're working with or you are somebody that somebody else in the organization depends on or requires in place to get stuff done, Trusted Advisor is an absolute... That's my most read book on my bookshelf. There's another really cool one, Team of Teams. That's amazing. Kind of the new version of Matrix Management, Team of Teams is a brilliant book. Really great read, really insightful, a lot of common sense logic in it. You just, when you read it, you're like, oh, wow, I don't know why I've not been practicing this. Hybrid teaming-based model. Hmm. I'll have to read that and then we should discuss. <laughs> I've, been, uh, I've been coaching a couple leaders through piloting cross-functional product teams, similar to the agile concept, but not like scaled agile in practice, but just that idea of we should get a team together that can be as close to the customer as possible and own the delivery of value. And unfortunately, I think a lot of agile practices have gotten away from that core concept, <laughs> but yeah. there's something really there. No, absolutely. I'd say the number one thing for focus, be authentic and be patient. And remember, when you lead, you're leading that person in the manner that they find themselves to be led, not in how you aspire them to be led. And that means finding their unique soul, their unique character. And how do you draw that out and help them put it on fire? And when they've got it lit, step back and celebrate. It reminds me, the epitome for me is a vision of the leadership. There is a TED talk where a guy goes through leadership. They talk about conductors that are leaders and how they use the conductors as the leader with the waving, the, mm-hmm. the, all that sort of stuff. And the very last one is a conductor. And the guy just stands there. He's magnificent in his team. And he just stands there and he watches his team. He's not waving his hands. He's not orchestrating or directing anything. He's just standing there and loving what the people are that he's now worked with them for, I don't know, weeks, months, years, for them to become this phenomenal orchestra. And he's just standing there. He's not conducting them. He's just standing in front there like he's an audience member and he's just loving listening to them play. And that's effective leadership, right? Is when you can get people to do without you having to instruct. Yeah. I think patience is a real underrated leadership attribute. And I say that because I think we are in an age of false urgency (laughs) where everyone's trying to rush forward. Everyone's trying to get to the finish line. Everything is important. Everything needed to have been done yesterday. And when I walk into organizations that embody that sense of real urgency, Often when I look at their performance, they're so focused on arriving that they miss the opportunities along the way that suggest maybe a different path would lead you to even more success. And I wish that our society was a little less focused on urgency and productivity right now, because I think patience allows us the spaciousness to really learn from the past, be more aware and present so that we can see the opportunities in front of us, and then make more conscious choices about our future, knowing that given the rapidity with which conditions change, we almost need to slow down even more sometimes because we need to have the space to cultivate that awareness. We can make decisions about our strategy and how to change it. So if you chat with my team, they'll tell you that I'm probably one of the most impatient, high (laughs) high expectations of people around me. And I'm a, a Mr. Fix-It in the absolute opposite of the advice of what executives should be doing. I've learned to tame it a lot. And what's brilliant is because I have the safe space with my team, 
my team will get on a call with me and say, right, Andrew, we've got a problem. I don't need you to go into fix-it mode. I just need you to listen. So it's that level of relationship. You can just get in there. So to be honest, in some areas, I am as impatient as heck. In other areas, I have the patience of a butterfly. I can sit and just wait and just wait and wait and wait and help people. Yeah, I shared this in my conversation with Tim Winner, but patience is not a virtue that I was born with or cultivated. (laughs) And I had to learn it when I started my business because... You have no control over your pipeline. You have no control over how people will respond. And you have no control over is the hypothesis that you start with going to land in the market or will you need to pivot? And the lack of certainty and control just killed me (laughs) for the first year of my business. And I really had to step back and learn the art of being appreciative for where I was, like that conductor celebrating the successes I'd had and where I am today. And also the patience to know that if I keep putting in the work every day and I'm conscious and aware of what could be, that I'll make the right choices and what's for me will come. That's a hard virtue to learn to your point if it's not something that you're born with. It's humbling. eh? And as you go through that journey of realizing that it's humbling and there's the old saying that it's lonely at the top for the CEO, you know, again, Mm -hmm. our CEO's credit, he's built a a strong team of very opinionated people who are go-getters and doers. And while it is lonely at the top, and because at the end of the day, his CEO carries all the bucks and the buck stops there. He has a team of people who are specialized in the areas that he lets get on with their work. And I think that's a critical part to why I've been able to be, because if I took my leadership style to any average company, it would probably be squashed. Um, it would not succeed. The organization would be incredibly worried. You have to demonstrate that it can work. People have literally have to see it operating. He often comes to me and says, well, I kind of thought that was going to fail, but prove me wrong. I'm on board now. <laughs> I love that. Well, as we come to the close of our conversation, I'd love to ask my typical closing question, which is what's one piece of conventional leadership wisdom you think is outdated? Instructional. People who are using title, rank, file, order, policy process as a means to yield the leaders of tomorrow. I think you will be successful in getting the job done, but you will not create the multiplier that's needed. And what is more sad is you will lose the people that are those next leaders because they will go find other areas where they can be engaged with as this generational leadership thing. As you know, most of my direct reports, they're more than half my age, that that you will lose the opportunity to make a difference in people's lives and to grow people. And you'll win by getting the job done. But I think instructional rank and file leadership, I think, is done. When you say instructional leadership, Can you define that in a sentence or two for people who aren't aware of what that means specifically? That means you do what I told you to do. Don't ask any questions. And if you're going to frown, then there's the door and feel free to exit yourself. At best, you get it done. Otherwise, there will be consequences and do it exactly as I told you to do it. So you stifle creativity, you stifle initiative, you collapse the soul, you make it a lonely place to work, you make it a job where you're getting a salary and then you go home and in four or five years time, you change your jobs. And I'll take that one step further and say, not only is it bad for talent retention, but it's really bad for long-term organizational performance. And you don't even have to be a micromanager. Just to be a leader who's accustomed to project managing their people's work. So, you know, setting their objectives, setting their activities with them, that form of management means that you have to be the key decision maker. 
And that's a huge problem in terms of organizational health, I think, for two additional reasons. One is, given the pace of change that we've talked about in today's world, one person is not in the position to be fully aware of what's happening on the ground and how to make the best decisions given rapid shifts in the context. You should be hiring people who can master their domain context and then make those types of pivot decisions on their own. So you end up losing that ability to be really responsive and really adaptive. The second reason is it's slow. I've said this before. I think matrixed organizations are a thing of the past because Every time you make a decision, it necessitates that anyone who's involved with that square or decision has to get in a room and talk about it. And that's not efficient. (laughs) It burns people out. It wastes time. I think it's the reason we have so many meetings in many organizations. And I think that's where we could speed up and maybe a little less patience would be good. <laughs> Absolutely. Because what you just described is the death knell for a startup. Room. You know, in a large organization, it takes mm-hmm. six months to make a decision. But if you're demonstrating that behavior in a startup, you're done. I mean, you're signing the death warrant for a startup. Yeah, that's six months of runway you've lost, which mm-hmm. is more than many startups have in yes, their bank awesome. account. Well, thank you so much. This has been an enriching conversation. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you. It's been wonderful to chat with you. And I wasn't quite sure where the discussion would go and what topics would cover listening to all your podcasts. It was interesting, but thank you very much. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Empowered Leadership. If you'd like to connect with Andrew or read more about LifeQ, I invite you to check the show notes for links to the LinkedIn profiles of both. I've also provided links to several of the books that Andrew and I discussed. So if you're interested in checking out some of those resources, I invite you to do so. As always, thank you for joining and have a lovely day. To find out more on how you can improve your leadership, life, and impact with confidence, ease, and joy, please visit my website, opastrategy.com. That's O-P-A strategy.com. And then please make sure to search for Empowered Leadership wherever you get your podcasts and click to subscribe so you don't miss a future episode. And if you enjoyed this one, please do share with a friend or a colleague. It makes a big difference. Thank you so much and have a lovely day.